Well, in social sciences, there's, there's only one law, and that is that we die. They'll forego what you'd expect as to be a revision of their ideas. They'll forego those doubts because the maintaining membership and status within the group becomes more important. Someone said that paradigms don't really shift until the dominant ambassadors of that paradigm die. This campaign is not just about electing a president, it is about making a political revolution. Taking money from our children and borrowing from China. People are dying. Is the program so critical, it's worth borrowing money from China to pay for it? And if not, I'll get rid of it. Stop lying! I want the truth! Now, let's see if we can avoid the apocalypse altogether. Here's another episode of Macro and Cheese with your host, Steve Grumbine. All right, this is Steve with Real Progressives. I have Professor Bill Mitchell joining me from Australia. Something very important to know about this. Bill Mitchell is one of the original, you know, founding developers of modern monetary theory. And this is one of the most difficult things for lay people who are trying to advance the knowledge of modern monetary theory, um, you know, both amongst each other and through the political parties and, and wherever we go, wherever we're taking this knowledge, we're always approached with the question, why the T? What's the deal with the T? What's the deal with the theory thing, right? But it turns out this is probably the most important thing for us to understand because in the world of economics, you're surrounded by academia, you're surrounded by a lot of people that have a lot of stake in the game to make sure that their, their thoughts and, and their work are regarded. And more importantly, the, the truth of the studies comes to the forefront. So what I'd like to do is I'm going to bring on my friend and the most brilliant economist I know, Bill Mitchell, um, bring him on. And we're going to talk a little bit about the T in modern monetary theory. Bill Mitchell, welcome to the show, sir. Yeah, good day. How you going? I hear you great. How are you? I'm okay. So tell us just a little bit about what a theory is. Well, when you think about it, you start off uh, a, a person who's thinking about uh, uh, trying to understand something, uh, a reality, if, if you like. Uh, we start off with a series of conjectures about reality, and they're just guesses or hypotheses you know they're they're just they're just unsubstantiated at that stage and um so we might say you know a causes b b being a reality and a being another thing in the reality that we're trying to comprehend or understand and um that's not yet a theory in my view that's just what we call a conjecture just a guess and uh to advance that a bit further we have to then get what I call congruency. Now, that sounds like a pretty awful term, 
But all it means is that uh, the idea that you have about A and B has to stack up when you start going out and actually checking out what A and B is. And, you know, in the jargon, that means we do empirical research, we collect data, and we check out whether what we said about A and B, the conjecture, stacks up whether yeah whether you push a and b moves in the way you sort of broadly think it does actually happens and if it doesn't happen then you've got a problem because it means that your conjecture is not congruent now there's a got to avoid getting into the the world of religion here because uh we're, we're not searching for truth when we're doing this type of theorizing because uh, how would we know the truth if we actually stumbled on it? Uh, there's no way of really knowing whether we've actually found the truth. So when we're talking about congruency, we're actually talking about what uh, econometricians say is a tentatively adequate representation of the data. A tentatively adequate representation. Now, what that means in English is uh, that for the time being, the explanation you're offering uh, provides an adequate depiction of the movements in the data, in, uh, you know, A and B. You don't know whether it's the actual truth, but for the time being, it's the best explanation that you've got available for the relationship between A and B in the real world. And for the time being, you sail with that, you move along with that, that's your theory, it's congruent. Predictions are never going to be 100% accurate because there's what we call randomness in the world. But for the time being, you basically are getting things correct. That uh, when, when you say this will happen, it broadly happens. When you say this won't happen, it broadly doesn't happen. And that's what I think is a theory. Tell me, what is the difference between a theory and a hypothesis? As you know, I think what happens now, you, you gave a very, very in-depth explanation of what theory means in, in the real world. And probably a lot of people are like, wow, what does the word congruent mean? Let me Google that here. Let me Google that for you. But when it comes to the barroom chatter that the random person has, they're sitting there saying, well, I think my girlfriend cheated on me. I think this happened. All right. Well, that's an interesting theory. You have no proof. There's no, none, there's no congruency. There's no none of that. It's a hypothesis. They're guessing. This is like, this is something that, you know, maybe, maybe it could be happening. You're telling us that you've got empirical data. You're saying that you've witnessed this. You've watched it repeatedly over and over again. And that makes congruent logical sense that this is the best data we have to date with the parameters and the variables that we've been able to establish. This right here represents reality to the best of our ability at this moment, bar nine. We've been able to repeat this, and therefore it has risen to the level of a theory. The next highest thing would be a law, which I would imagine, you know, very few things meet the criteria of a law that we've worked through. Can you step us through how the, the hypothesis you guys came up with for the, the thinking that became the theory came to be? What were some of the, the inputs that allowed you to? put this theoretical framework together? Well, in social sciences, there's, there's only one law, and that is that we die. So that's a law. That's a physical law, we die. Uh, in, in the physical sciences, 
there are lots of laws, you know, like gravity and stuff like that. They're, they're actual eternal verities that are ground within the, in the reality of the system, the physical system. In social sciences, we don't have laws. Now, the, the person in the bar who's worrying about his uh, partner, whether it's female or male, not engaging in fidelity, would turn that conjecture into a theory, in my view, into something congruent by hiring a private investigator to go and uh, take some camera shots. And, uh, and certainly in Australia, before we had no-fault divorce, that's, that's what used to happen. You'd have uh, these private investigators hanging off ceilings and busting <laughs> into hotel rooms with cameras to get the evidence to make the conjecture congruent. What, what we start off with in, in social sciences are just guesses and uh, uh, intuitions or, or conjectures. And, those, and when I say conjecture, that's equivalent to the word you used, hypothesis. And a hypothesis is just a, an idea at that stage. And we don't know whether it's got legs or not. We then have to operationalise it and take it further to see whether it does have legs. And so when we want to uh, do that, we have to confront it with the real world. We have to say, okay, does this conjectural hypothesis have empirical content? Uh, which means uh, it, it has an explanatory power, which means that it, when we say A is related to B in this particular way, that's currently a conjecture, then we see actually whether the data in the real world supports the view that A is related to B in the way we think it is. And that's, con that's then becoming a congruency. For the time being, we're validating the, our proposition by making statements about the real world and then finding out whether the real world behaves broadly in accordance with that. Now, I, I find it fascinating because we get a lot of pushback about the T, right? But you don't get any pushback when talking about Milton Friedman's quantity theory of money. They don't go, oh, it's just a theory. They're like, we're all going to die. Inflation's going to kill us. Oh, my God, quantity theory of money. It's going to happen. But there is no theory that that's already been debunked. I mean, that's literally been debunked, turned on its head, thrown in the trash. What do you suppose the rigor is that you all have gone through, because I mean, just, just in the small time that you all have been, and small is relative, but in the last 20 plus years that you all have been doing this, there has been incredible amounts of writing. You can go all over the place. You alone have written, you know, hobbit levels of you know, tomes of work um, that is just amazingly deep, very detailed. There has been an incredible amount of rigor backing the theory of the, the conception of the theory of modern monetary theory. Can you talk a little bit about the rigor that you all have gone through in, in testing uh, your conjectures and your theses and so forth? Yeah, let's step back one pace. Sure. A, a, a body of ideas contains a number of elements. So if we're thinking about what we now call modern monetary theory, it contains a number of distinct elements. It contains definitions. So any body of work has to have some de definitions. In other words, uh, defining concepts and meanings of things so that we can talk about things in a consistent way. So that we know when we're talking about what, what do we mean by money? 
What do we mean by government? What do we mean by credit? Any body of ideas has to have definitions. In modern monetary theory and in, in economics as well, gen, more generally, we, because modern monetary theory is just economics, we also have to have accounting structures. And so we have, uh, in, in macroeconomics, the study of aggregates, we have the national income accounting structure, which measures economic activity. GDP, gross domestic product, household consumption, business investment, government spending, these are all measured within a, an accounting structure that is agreed by statistical agencies. And so that forms another element in modern monetary theory. We, we take on national income accounting as it is. Now, this is where a lot of the uh, misconception arises because one of the ways in which we view the national accounts, and we didn't invent this, but we've, I think we've brought it back into the mainstream via Wynne Godley and others, but is what I'm calling, what I'm talking about here is the sectoral balances. And the sectoral balances is an incredibly important part of modern monetary theory. But as it stands, so the most simple statement drawn from the sectoral balances is that the government deficit, brackets, surplus, is exactly equal, dollar for dollar, whatever currency you want, to the non-government surplus bracket deficit. In other words, if the government is running a $100 billion deficit, then the non-government sector has to be running a $100 billion surplus and whatever else, you, you know, every, any other permutation you want. Now, as it stands, that's an accounting statement. It's quite an interesting accounting statement because you can draw things out of it that are contrary to the way in which the mainstream narrative is presented in the media. So, for example... If you want to make a, a, a case that the non-government sector has to reduce its debt levels, then you logically require the government sector to support that by not reducing its debt levels. And uh, you can't have a world where you're pushing the government sector to run surpluses at the same time as you want the non-government sector to run surpluses and reduce its overall debt levels. So at the accounting level, the sectoral balances have some interesting and significant insights that provide leverage in the public debate to contest a whole lot of mainstream ideas that are used against the idea that government should pursue prosperity for all. And, and a lot of people then turn around and say, oh, yeah, well, MMT is just uh, about accounting that it's got no theory, it's just about accounting. Well, the important point to understand is that when we draw that accounting relationship out and say that the non-government surplus is identical to the government deficit, there's theory underpinning that statement, even though that statement in itself is just an accounting statement. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that the sectoral balances are, are a static, that is a, a snapshot at a point in time that has to always be the case because it's an accounting statement. 
But the point is that the world's moving all the time, that the components of the sectoral balances, and what I mean here is household saving, business investment, exports, imports, government spending, taxation revenue, the components of the sectoral balances are dynamic. They're moving all the time by by behavioural decisions that households and firms are making, that traders are making in the trading sector, that governments are making in the policy space. There's a dynamism going on there that is continually driving shifts in those sectoral balances. And so each time we take a snapshot and apply our accounting rules, the sectoral balances hold. But that's only the accounting part of the story. The the dynamism is in the behavioural relationships that are driving those components. Now, that's where you need theory because you need a theory of the behaviour of households, of business firms. You know, what drives business investment? Well, it's not an accounting statement that you're making. You're making a conjectural statement. So when we say that business firms are driven by expected returns, by technological things in terms of indivisibilities, by costs of funding, and how does the cost of funding impact upon uh, uh, business firm investments, et cetera, et cetera? What are the time horizons? That's theory. That's the exercise, a uh, theoretical exercise, which then, and you know, what drives household consumption? Well, in the most simple theoretical model, we think that's disposable income and wealth. That's the most simple explanation for what drives household consumption. Now, the important point then is, if that theory stacks up, we can then understand that if something, one component of the sectoral balances changes, well, then that will drive changes throughout the economy, which will consistently be bringing back the sectoral balances into its accounting relationship. What do I mean by that? Well, we know, let's say that household saving is a, is, is a function, that's a theoretical word, it means it's just dependent upon disposable income. That's a simple theory. In other words, as household income goes up, we'll spend more on consumption, but we'll also save more because we've got some left over. We don't spend every dollar that we get in extra income. And if uh, imports are a function of income too, so when national income goes up, we tend to buy more imports. We don't buy as many imports as extra dollars outlay on imports as we get on extra household income. But that's, that's a theoretical statement. Uh, you know, it might be a theoretical statement to say that imports depends upon how much uh, your football team wins at each weekend. That would be a, a conjecture. But then if you confronted that with the data, it wouldn't make much sense. Whereas if you confront the, the, the conjecture that imports depends upon national income in a positive way and you confront that with the data, sure enough, you'll find that countries that have rising national income also have rising imports in a proportional way. And so that's a congruency with your conjecture and becomes your theory. And why I'm saying all this is because Linking those sectoral balance components to shifts in income gives you the understanding of how that accounting relationship is continually being met. 
because what happens is, let's say household savings, as it stands, the accounting relationship tells you nothing that nothing about what would happen in the economy if households decided to consume less. What happens? Well, the accounting doesn't tell you anything, but the theory tells you if households consume less of their income, they therefore save more, and if they save more, they spend less, and if they spend less, firms observe inventories rising, and if inventories are rising, they cut back on production. If they cut back on production, employment falls. If employment falls, household incomes fall. And so you start to see the linkage, the behavioural linkages in the economy that then drive all of the shifts in the components. And at each point in time, there's an accounting relationship satisfied, but we, we have a much deeper understanding then of how those behavioural shifts work and what brings all of those accounting entities into their accounting equality. You bring up some great points. I, obviously, they're fantastic points, but you bring up some points that cause me to hearken back to another uh, non-heterodox economist in Simon Ren Lewis, who frequently talks about micro-foundations and is always trying to take pot shots at modern monetary theory about a lack of micro-foundations. And what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing from you, which really pretty much closes the lid on that, is that all these factors below are part of the consideration as you've taken into consideration factors of savings, factors of behavior, factors that are empirical in nature, studies that have occurred, et cetera, you can logically assume certain things. Is it going to always be that way? No, but it's going to be that way most times. So you can make your congruent statements. You can put this together into a logical train that does indeed sound like it has an incredible amount of micro foundations. Am I missing something here or is Simon Ren Lewis trying to obfuscate the obvious? I mean, you know, obviously I don't have the insight that someone such as yourself might have, but I know on the layperson level, at least at my level anyway, that I hear him say that. And I think that it's like, he's not really addressing what we're saying. He's kind of addressing some other thing that he's trying to reframe what we're saying into his own language, which it doesn't work because his language is wrong from jump. Can you explain what he means by micro foundations and explain the micro foundations that went into preparing some of this congruent uh, conjectures turned into theory? Well, that's um, that's a topic, isn't it? It is indeed. <laughs> we, we'll, we'll start. We'll start this way. Macroeconomics is the study of aggregates, and macroeconomics is essentially an abstraction. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, there's no such thing as the price level. There's no such thing as GDP. It's an aggregate that we've conceptualised. And uh, so when we talk about the the price level, which, you know, we, we then derive an inflation rate from, that's just a construction. It doesn't actually exist. It's an abstraction because there's millions of prices. And we've got to work out some way in which we aggregate all those things up to become a macroeconomic entity. Now, before the 1930s, there was no macroeconomics. There was only microeconomics, Marshallian economics and Walrasian economics. And so they believed that uh, you could come to understand what happens to a nation as a whole, the aggregate, 
by examining the what happens at the individual level. So we focus on an individual consumer and we try to work out how that individual consumer makes decisions about spending and saving, etc. And then the dodge was to get an aggregate from that. We could just simply add up all of the individual consumers. Now, the problem was that it doesn't work that way. The aggregate was really greater than the sum of the parts. And so in the 1930s, uh, John Maynard Keynes and others showed categorically that if you tried to reason at the aggregate level, make statements at the aggregate level about the nation as a whole, for example, by drawing out inferences that you make at the individual level, then you'll make errors. And the, and the classic one was paradox of thrift. And this, this was a classic error of logic that the mainstream economists were making when they were trying to make general statements drawn from the specific. So how did that work briefly? The argument was that if an individual could discipline themselves to save more out of their weekly income or whenever they got paid, then as long as they were disciplined enough, they could do that. They could increase the proportion that they saved out of their own income. So then the question is, well, if everybody saved, so then you're, that's a specific observation. So then if you go to the general level, if you generalise that statement, you would say that if everybody saved more, they could out of their income. They could increase the proportion of saving out of their income. But the problem is, and here we get to, to the logical fallacy, problem is if everybody, if one person saves more, it's not going to have much effect at all on total demand in the economy, total spending in the economy. So they stop spending a little bit, they buy less uh, booze and they go, go out less and stuff. Well, that's not going to have very much effect in the market on total spending. But then if you apply that to everybody and everybody stops spending a bit and tries to save more, what happens? Total spending falls. And if total spending falls, total income, national income falls, production falls, employment falls, incomes fall. And so you end up not, and if savings is a function of income, you end up not saving more at all. And that's, that's the paradox of thrift, that if one person does it, they'll do it. But if everybody does it, that falls down. And so that, the point about that was that the micro-reasoning didn't give you a reliable macroeconomics, didn't give you a reliable understanding of what would happen at the aggregate level. Now, that was one of Keynes's great contributions. So jump forward to the 1960s. Milton Friedman and his gang were out there trying to debunk the Keynesian orthodoxy and they were trying to push these new monetarist ideas that they'd been chipping away with through the 1950s and the 60s. And they wanted to reinstate the sort of these classical ideas about the, the uh, priority of microeconomic reasoning. So, so this is when this literature, this micro-foundations literature really took off again, and they claimed that the government had to behave like a household, and that led to the, all of this micro-foundations coming back in. Now, the problem is they couldn't get over the earlier problem that I raised, and uh, this, is, this is this problem that 
there is no single individual consumer. There's millions of consumers and they all behave differently and they all have different preferences and different constraints and so on and so forth. So, so the Micro Foundation's concept is that people are rational, they optimise in their decision-making. When they've got choices, they always take the best and they make these choices with independent preferences, independent from each other. And that's the sort of classic micro idea of rational human making these optimising decisions. Now, if you then try to say that everybody's like that, well, obviously it doesn't work. The, the aggregation of, of those, it's impossible to do mathematically and it's impossible to work to build a macroeconomics from that. Now, I know that sounds very technical, but just it's, it's one of those things you have to believe me. You can't do it. And so the way in which the mainstream and people like Simon Wren Lewis, who's, a, who's an advocate of the sort of most modern version of mainstream economics, New Keynesian economics, the way they get around that aggregation impossibility is that they bring in what's called the representative agent model. Now, what's that? Well, that's very simple and very crude. They say that they make the assumption that there's only one consumer in the whole economy and there's only one firm in the whole economy and that that firm behaves like the individual consumer of microeconomic theory. So New Keynes in economics, for example, has the representative agent model built into it. Let's, be, let's try to make this even clearer. So they've got this idea of micro-foundations, that optimisation, that free choice of individuals who pursue their own self-interest will deliver the best outcome for the world, for themselves. And if, you, if everybody behaves like that, you'll get the best outcome for the world. That's what they believe. The most And best is efficient, low-cost production, consumer satisfaction maximised, welfare, uh, what they call welfare is maximised. But they can't get a macroeconomics out of that by, in terms of the way they construct their mathematical models. So they have to overcome that aggregation impossibility by assuming that just like at the individual household level there's one consumer, at the macroeconomic level there's this representative agent. It's representative of all of us. And so what that means in reality is that they don't actually have micro foundations. They say they have but they, they've got a representative agent. And, uh, of course, the representative agent model has no correspondence with reality. The reality is that we have very interdependent preferences. You know, there's the expression keeping up with the Joneses. Is that an American expression? I think so, yes, sir. You know, that, you look at, that when your neighbour gets a car next door, a fancy new model car, you look at it and you say, gee, I better get one of those too, otherwise I'll be looking inferior in my neighbourhood. Or, you know, we, we, we have pattern behaviour, we hunt in packs, we look out what other people are doing, we're influenced by fashion trends and all of the rest of it. We don't have independent preferences and we certainly behave in irrational ways at times, we certainly behave in ways that are counterproductive, but are emotional and satisfy different types of uh, needs. And so when Simon Renouz talks about micro foundations, he's talking about a fiction that has no correspondence with the real world. And that plays out 
by the fact that the sort of predictive capacity, the congruency of new Keynesian models is just lacking badly. And that plays out in terms of they didn't even understand that we're heading towards global financial crisis, for example. You are listening to Macro and Cheese, a podcast brought to you by Real Progressives, a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching the masses about MMT or modern monetary theory. Please help our efforts and become a monthly donor at PayPal or Patreon. Like and follow our pages on Facebook and YouTube, and follow us on Periscope, Twitter, and Instagram. As a lay person, right? I, I, I get into these discussions with him on occasion. I watch others uh, getting in discussions and he wades into the pools as somebody who's, I almost feel like, <laughs> it sounds terrible, but like like that little demon that's leading you away. Surely you'll have the apple. He comes in as a friend. Yeah, of course. And then he's like, why, why do you come off so angry? Or why do you this? Or why do you that? And it's distraction throughout, but he, but he always tries to act like, hey, we're on the same team. No, 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 no. And then when we say this stuff, it just, it, it's unfathomable to me because they always go back to things where, where these, these like fake rules that we've put in place somehow or another hold the merit of, of a law like death. I mean, we're talking about real honest to goodness. Um, like they, it's a religion of sorts because, you know, I, I just see a lot of belief that it doesn't matter what you present to them. They won't even respond back within the context of what we're talking about. It's like the language is so vastly different. The two are incompatible. There is no bridge. And, and this brings me to another discussion point for a debate that was going on. J.W. Mason and someone else wrote an article the other day basically saying, hey, you know, MMT is basically completely in line with neoclassical economics or something to that effect. And it brought the hounds. I mean, we're talking about the entire MMT crew came pouring out there. That's crazy. It's ludicrous. It's not true. And, and so there's an awful lot of people that don't understand MMT that try to assume MMT and try to assert things about MMT that MMT neither says nor does, nor is in any way, shape or form actually really representative of the body of work of MMT or the theoretical framework of MMT. I'm, I've probably said some things that were off-putting or even incorrect over the course of my learning. Um, but I'm also not parading myself around as the Christ. I always say I'm the Baptist pointing to you guys. <laughs> what do you think? I'm being silly here. I, I mean, I mean it's, it's, I'm trying to have some fun with it a little bit because it is, it is toxic when you see this stuff. You're trying to have a legitimate conversation with people. And, you know, for our purposes, I mean, the average person here probably gets to the point of understanding that bonds help control interest rates, that they don't really actually finance government spending in a, you know, sovereign nation, you know, fiat nation, et cetera. And, and you go through some basics at this, you know, we go down a couple layers and then there's this whole like cloud beneath there that we're like, I don't really know what goes on in the cloud, but I trust these guys. 
when you're listening to this stuff go on, it's like they think that we're full of kimchi. And we point to you all and we show, like, for example, um, Warren's explanation of back in the day, you know, the, the first, the, once, once the kingdom issued the first tax, it created the very first unemployed person. And so some of these like historical things that go into the historical makeup of MMT and the historical makeup of fiat currency and chartalism, et cetera, and then add in the framework that you have presented, it seems like they're not even willing to acknowledge these stark differences because I've been through Keynes. I've been through a lot of this stuff. And I came out the other side thinking I knew what I was talking about after I graduated with my MBA. And I realized, man, oh man, I didn't know a lot. There's so much that I was snowed under. What do you think is that chasm there? I mean, it's a huge chasm. It really is a monster of a chasm. Look, I think Simon Wren Lewis is one of the more reasonable ones of them, by the way. During the global financial crisis, I, I thought the game might be up for mainstream. Uh, and I was wrong on that. And, and I, I was forced to read a literature that I hadn't fully understood in the past. And this was a sort of literature in social psychology. I, I've now sort of studied, done fairly deep studies in that literature. And my 2015 book on the Eurozone was entitled Groupthink and Denial on a Grand Scale. That was a product of some of the research I'd done on social psychology on trying to understand why otherwise reasonable people in, in life, otherwise highly, you know, all the people in academic life are highly intelligent the way we measure those things. They're, they're clever characters. They, they've uh, been through the hoops. So you have to ask yourself the question, and why do they hang on to, to ideas? that are bereft of congruency, of empirical support. Why do they hang on to these ideas? Why do they keep saying that, that if the central bank runs quantitative easing, there's going to be hyperinflation? Why do they keep saying that when, when it's quite evident? And it's not just the most recent era of quantitative easing. You know, Japan's been at it since the early 90s. And Japan is my sort of laboratory, my real-world laboratory. It just refutes almost all of the mainstream propositions that you want, that deficits drive up interest rates, that uh, quantitative easing drive, uh, uh, expansion of central bank balance sheets drives up uh, inflation. All of these things are just empirically just don't stack up. So why do they hang on to these ideas? And the, the reason relates to the psychology of groups, I think, and the way in which groups have pattern behaviour. And if you think about it, you know, a character like me, uh, you've done very well at secondary school. You go to university, you, uh, you're among the better of the secondary school students, better in academics. I'm not talking about better, better. I'm talking about people who have done well in the way we measure academic progress. And then, you know, you do the selection process through universities is uh, that by the time you're at the end of your graduate, your undergraduate years, the ones who are the really bright sparks academically are starting to show through. They go through the postgraduate studies, they get a PhD, they get an academic job there, the creme de la creme. And they think of themselves as being real sharp characters, really bright characters. We're now talking, how old are you? You're 28 or something by now, or 30 even. And you've invested a lot of your formative life in uh, getting this PhD to get into the academy. 
and you've got uh, in economics mostly you've got a very defined set of work tools and uh, you've invested a lot of time and effort and you've foregone a lot of lot of uh, income to get there. And not many academics become top-line researchers. Most of them become textbook pushers. Uh, and so by the age of 45, uh, you've risen to a certain rank in the academy, Not and normally that's the end of your your increase. The ones who are the real, really good researchers go on further and get in the America in the English system, like the Australian British system, you get full chairs or something. You be, you you get to be called a professor. Slightly different in the American North American system, but you know by the age of forty five, your career's on the way. Some people then have reached the ceiling, and their life is filled with uh, pumping out uh, stuff from a textbook that the publisher brings around every year and pushes it pushes to you. You tend to you sit in a lot of meetings. And you fill up your time uh, because you're not succeeding in research. You fill up your time as a as an administrator, t- teacher, something like that. Now, the end of life syndrome <laughs> approaches. All you all you're waiting for then is to get a, to to retire on your superannuation or your pension, and play golf or go sailing and do a bit of travelling and uh, hope that your health holds. Now, what the hell is that? Why why would that person then abandon all of those tools midstream and admit that they were wrong. What's the motivation for that? Particularly when you're in a, a group that has got incredibly rigid rules with respect to promotion, uh, with respect to assigning status, with respect to getting any publications and research money or any of those things. These are really, this is a really disciplined community in economics. And you've learned to play the game. You've learned not to rock the boat and you've got up to your career progression and then you're waiting for your retirement. Now, why would a person in that situation say, God, modern monetary theory, that's got congruency, let's go for it. Let's, why would they do it? Because well, it's against all of our social psychology, our group behaviour. To do that would be defying your scholastic community would be to jeopardise any future hope you've got for promotion, would be to stop yourself, a young person stopping themselves making progression, getting research money, getting publications, those reinforcing powers. So, so in other words, the group membership becomes your priority. And there's lots of examples in, in, in academic life, not just economics, where people within the academic-specific community will forego all of their doubts. You know, when empirical things come in that show that what they're teaching is, is just nonsensical, they'll forego what you would expect as, to be a revision of their ideas. They'll forego those doubts because the maintaining membership and status within the group becomes more important. And so you were, and gr- groups work out all sorts of ways of behaving then. When there's anomalies coming in from the real world, they revise history. Now, just look at what look at all of the revision of the what happened during the Great Depression. It's a, ab- absolutely amazing some of the stories that are now being told about what happened of the Great Depression. That it wasn't saved by the in America by the New Deal or by the onset of the Second World War. All these historical revisions. So people do that. They also just deny things. They just make stuff up, and they just deny that the global financial crisis was saved from 
total financial collapse by government deficits. They just deny that. And uh, that's the way they, they overcome their own personal doubts and maintain membership of the group. That's foundational in social psychology, that sort of groupthink behaviour. And so that, to me, explains why when some uh, rebels come along and, and what, what ultimately happens is that the groupthink uh, collapses. A classic example is neurogenesis. This is the idea that the brain, it's, it's now the dominant idea in, in psychiatry, that the brain can repair itself. Up until the early 60s, psychiatry believed that if you had a brain injury, tough luck. The question then was how impaired would you be? And a young academic came up with the idea in the early 60s that the brain could actually repair itself. So a brain injury wasn't going to be a terminal problem. That there were all these sort of things. I don't know all the story, you know, all of the the medicine of it, but there were all these electrons that would presumably sort of reconnect in different ways and fix themselves up in, in some way, shape or form. Now, because that view from that academic was contrary to the dominant view and all of the senior professors in the profession at the time held on to the dominant view because it was their view, they were the ones that had established their career on the basis of that view, that young academic, that view was vilified, you know, it was just shut out. Now, ultimately, then the empirical world started to show that brains do repair themselves. And it wasn't until the sort of, I think, the late 19, middle of the 1990s that another academic came along with the view of neurogenesis that the dominant paradigm that had been slowly being uh, undermined by the empirical observations that the brain does repair itself, that it wasn't until the 90s that that view became popular. And there's a, so I forgot who said it, someone, one of your viewers, one of the people watching this will probably know. Someone said that paradigms don't really shift until the dominant ambassadors of that paradigm die, that you've got to wait till the senior professors all die out so that the, there's, a, there's a, an open playing field again. And I think that's, that explains what's happening with MMT now, that uh, it's quite clear that the empirical challenge to mainstream economics is powerful, but there's incredible resistance by the mainstream professors because they've got a lot at stake. And so you're getting these sort of spurious things like that J.W. Mason thing was just a total disgrace. They were holding, they, they held it out. I mean, this was uh, INET, Institute for New Economic Thinking, and they were Roosevelt scholars. And they tweeted that, uh, you know, how does MMT stack up theoretically against mainstream? Well, you know, that there's not much difference. They tweeted that. And, of course, the article, if you read it, was nothing to do with MMT. It said it characterised MMT as functional finance only, and it said let's abstract from all of the distinctive characteristics of mainstream economics. So it was a, it was a, but it was consistent with this view of paradigms trying to protect themselves and bring back any rebels back within the mainstream and try to bring back any new ideas as if we knew it all along, that sort of idea. There's a, a guy, and I don't want to bring him up specifically, but he, uh, he, he has some alternative views, but he had one really, really powerful view, and he wrote a great article, and it was called, Why I'm Tired of Doing the Semmelweis. 
And, you know, I'm sure you know the story of Ignaz Semmelweis, who was a Hungarian doctor who had discovered that, hey, you know, if we clean our hands with bleach and stuff, it'll get rid of the stench of the cadavers that these students were working with. But it also miraculously started dramatically dropping the uh, childbed death that was occurring in the mothers because the bacteria from the cadaverous remains on their hands were, were left in the woman and they were dying. And for years and years and years, he tried to get the mainstream doctors, the orthodoxy, if you will, to recognize that, hey, you know, washing your hands stops this stuff. But it directly contradicted their lifelong practices. It, it put the guilt on them because, my God, after all, you know, these people are, can't be dying because of us. We're doctors. And, you know, I think it was like 171 years after his death. Uh, you know, Semmelweis died frustrated and maddening because he was trying to explain this important thing. It took 171 years or something to that effect. And finally, it's like, hey, you know, by the way, if you wash your hands. The other classic example is uh, the Heliobacter virus. For years and years, we, we believed that ulcers, you know, stomach ulcers were due to stress or diet. You know, too much booze, too much uh, tomatoes in your diet, acidic food and too much stress. And uh, the pharmaceutical companies came along with their, their, you know, the largest drug that the pharmaceutical companies sell is, uh, it's marketed in Australia as Zantac, you know, I'm not sure what it's called in America, but... Same thing. You know know what I mean, yeah. I mean, it's this thing that, well, we can't treat them, we can just uh, ameliorate the symptoms with Zantac. And every three months or every six months or whatever the frequency you go to a, a gastroenterologist who sticks a tube down just to check up how you, your ulcers are going and you get a bill for 500 bucks or whatever it is. And the pharmaceutical companies are pushing Zantac and onto doctors and, and they come up with new remedies, blah, blah. There's a massive vested corporate interest in maintaining the idea that ulcers were to do with stress and other things like that. Anyway, a a young postgraduate student in Western Australia at one of the universities in Perth uh, came up with the idea that that actually it was nothing to do with those things. It was a uh, bacteria, not a virus, sorry. It was a bacteria called Heliobacter. And like all bacteria, you can treat them with antibiotics. And uh, he actually established that, I understand if, if if I'm correct, by infecting himself he basically drunk some of, the, some of the bacteria and then treated himself and showed that it was the case. Now, he published that work, I think it was in the early 70s, but you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it was a, a while ago. And he took that, took that research to international conferences and was absolutely vilified by the mainstream profession in medicine who refused to acknowledge that. Now, sure enough, the news leaked out and doctors started, rebel doctors started to prescribe antibiotics. And the pharmaceutical companies resisted it dramatically. And now what's the mainstream treatment for stomach ulcer? You go to your doctor, you get an antibiotic, and within a week or two weeks, your ulcer mostly is gone. And the gastroenterologists are losing money. The pharmaceutical companies are now not making as much money. And that's the, you know, the interaction within a capitalist system of vested capitalist interests 
interacting with the academy that's got these groupthink resistance to change because it undermines their own status. That's, that's the problem that we're up against. And in economics, we're up against the groupthink within the academy, but also the massive corporate vested interests that have got a, uh, a dominant paradigm of privatising returns, socialising losses. And for them, the mainstream economics is the way that they can re- you know, deregulate, privatise, cut welfare, but bail out the banksters. You know, that's the paradigm. And uh, th- they've got all these mainstream uh, economists mouthing all of this stuff, which, which re- preserves the status of the academy. And, they've, they, and the stuff that they're mouthing delivers policies that redistribute national income to the corporates away from workers. What's, what's there not to like about that? <laughs> that's the thing. You know, we're, we're trying to figure out ways of taking our, our network, our grassroots network that we're developing now as we speak and be able to take this information and push it out far and wide. I mean, we, we're uncompromising and we, we want to change the world and you're the validity. You're the, you're, it's your message. It's your work, not us. I mean, we, we are just messengers. We, we want to be carrying this message because your work is the work of hope. And, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I think I'm underselling that right now, quite frankly. You, you all are doing something so truly amazing. Um, stay calm, Steve. Stay calm. <laughs> well, no, I, I, believe me, when I look at the people and I know for a fact what people are doing, they're ready. You guys have been giving us incredible amounts of hope. You're, you're explaining things that have caused people to go and, and lose their minds because the despair, um, is so great. From, from not understanding why things are so crazy. And, you know, your book, Reclaiming the State, explained things incredibly well. And, and your description tonight of how the theory was put together gives a lot of confidence in the work everyone's doing. So I want to thank you, sir. And yes, it will stay calm. Look, at, look it's a long haul. Yes. Breaking down the sort of processes we were talking about today is a long haul. It doesn't happen overnight and you have to be patient you have to be relentless and you have to be clever. There's a lot of research on how to use social media nicely. And, uh, and there's lots of examples, I think, where social media is used not nicely. And I mean efficiently, effectively. And so I think we've got a whole story yet to work on. Uh, and your work, the messaging is incredibly important because no one really listens to academics. I mean, you know. They're just out there in their little tower and that's it. But you're, you're the conduit and uh, uh, your group and all the other people that uh, are, the, are the conduits. And that's incredibly important. And that's a bit that we've now got to work on more than anything, I think. Thank you, sir. I, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate this. Um, folks, Bill Mitchell, again, thank you so much for your time. Bill's pretty good at responding to things. When you when you ask questions on his blog, even uh, he's very interactive. So if you read the article and you have questions, feel free to ask. Bill Mitchell, thank you so much, sir. And tell your uh, wife I said hello. Take care. You See too, you sir. Good night, everybody. Bye bye. <laughs>